Keith here. When I started making the first episode of, I had no experience doing podcast interviews, especially the technical side of things. It was a lot of confusing steps, setting up double enders or making do with low quality recordings on whatever app I could figure out. But it got a whole lot easier when I started using Zencaster. Made for podcasts with Zencaster, it's so easy to do everything. You and your guests log in with a browser and record studio quality sound and up to 4K video, even with an unstable connection. And it's an all-in-one deal. You don't need a lot of different tools or services. With Zencaster, you can create your podcast all in one place and distribute it to Spotify, Apple, and other major platforms. If you've ever thought about making your own podcast, go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code TFEO and you'll get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. I want you to have the same easy experience I do for all my podcasting and content needs. It's time to share your story on Zencaster. Hey, it's Keith. If you're a lover of audio drama like I am, you need to know about the Apollo app. Apollo is designed around audio drama, so finding your next story is easy. You can always listen through Apollo for free, but there's also the Apollo Plus subscription. With it, you get ad-free listening, exclusives, and other bonus content for over 40 shows. And 70% of the revenue on Apollo Plus goes to those creators. Join Apollo Plus through the Apollo Podcasts app or apollopods.com. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of a podcast about audio drama and the creative process. I'm W. Keith Timms audio drama producer and podcaster. In this show, I listen to the first episode of an audio drama, then have a discussion with the creators about their show, their methods, struggles, and successes. Today, we're discussing the first episode of Wireland Ranch. psychedelic cosmic horror story, Wireland Ranch is the creation of Joseph Rutledge. Its shifting storylines revolve around a strange crumbling shack in the Mojave Desert, a missing delivery driver, a drug-addicted P.I. retracing the driver's steps, and the narrator, an archaeologist digging all of this up 5,000 years in the future. Wireland is also a mythological indictment of capitalism, casting the forces of consumerism, fear, and greed as cosmic entities. Rutledge relies on a psychedelic style to draw his listeners into feelings of dread. The first episode of Wireland Ranch, Return of the Overseer, focuses on a struggling courier who is contracted to pick up a package from a mysterious shop and who is drawn into an altered state of consciousness and vanishes. I spoke to Joseph remotely from his home in Georgia. Why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself as an artist and a creator? Growing up, I always, you know, wrote poetry and stuff like that. I never took it seriously, you know, until I went to prison. I was arrested for possession of heroin under a gram. 
I got four years. Well, I was only in for three before I got paroled, but I spent that entire three years writing, doing nothing but writing. I was pretty much in solitary confinement the whole time because I have uh, a disability, heart problems. So they wanted to keep me out of general population. So it was just like me in a room with a pencil and a pen and a copy of Twilight. And that was literally about it. The vampire book? (laughs) Yes. God, dude, I was in fucking prison and I couldn't make it through this fucking book. It is utter, utter trash. And like, I'm sitting here thinking like, okay, if she can do this, right? It's all just really about content and consistency. So anyway, I spent the whole time writing. I wrote two novels while I was in there. And then after I got out, it all went to the wayside because, hey, now I'm free, right? Like, why am I going to waste my time writing? (laughs) So I did that for a few years. And finally, I was like, dude, you are wasting your life. What are you doing? So I got all that stuff up in a crate, all the stuff I had written in prison, and I smushed it all together and ended up with this. Do you want to talk about your life and where you were before you got arrested? And Sure, sure. I was like in the very depths of like the worst of human experience. Like, I guess I can't say that. I imagine like genocide and things of that being a part of that is much worse. But like for a person, just an individual, especially in American society, the very worst afflictions you can have are homelessness or addiction. Mm. I, at the time, had both. I had just came back from Las Vegas. I was living in a homeless shelter up there. As soon as I got into Georgia, I got off the bus, got padded down, had a little more than half a gram of heroin, and was immediately and unceremoniously arrested. Yeah, it was really, it was a dark time, man. It was, um, I was in a position to where if I had not gotten arrested, I would very likely be dead. You mentioned you had a disability. I talk about it in Wireland sometimes. I was born with a coarctation of the aorta, which basically means I had 0.1% blood flow going to my lower body, pumping oh. through the aorta. Like that, the, the aorta was so compacted. That's the thing they usually catch at birth, but they didn't catch mine. The only reason they ever found out about it is because when I was playing football at nine years old, my nose would just start pouring blood just all Mm. the time. And that's when they finally realized, hey, it's all there because it's all in his torso and it's got to come out somewhere, you know? So uh, they did the surgery. And uh, ever since then, my blood pressure has ran on average about 160 over 210, somewhere around there, like my entire life. So I have to be really careful about all the things I do, like what I eat, like a lot of physical activity causes immediate chest pain to the point where it's like, okay, if you keep doing this, you're probably going to die. So yeah, that, that is about the extent of the disability. It's rough, man. Yeah. When you got out of prison, how did you turn things around? When you're on parole, they don't care whether you're disabled or not. You're going to work, right? That's it. That's all there is to it. So I was lucky enough to have a restaurant who was ran by a guy in a similar situation who was in prison himself. And he gave me a chance. He took it easy on me. He let things slide that a normal employer wouldn't let slide, like the amount of breaks, et cetera. So I was able to pull myself together with that. And with the help of my family, man, my stepfather and mother took me back into the house. You know, I squandered that for like maybe a year after I got out. Then I met a woman. We had a couple of kids and it was like, okay, this is what I'm doing now. This gives me meaning where I was lacking meaning before. Were you ever involved in the arts at all before then? Yeah, I made um, my only experience with uh, 
digital audio workstation, for instance, before this was making beats. I've always made music, but I never thought, okay, you know how when you write, you don't really know if your writing is good or not. You know what I mean? Like you can think, oh yeah, that's great, but you don't really know. And I was always afraid to find that out, you know? Yeah. When I write something, it's like, I like it, but what the hell do I know? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly (laughs) that. Yeah. Um, so I had experience there, uh, made a lot of music, wrote here and there. A friend of mine, we came up with an idea for a show. Uh, it was actually, we were going to write a book back when I was like 21 years old, right? And we came up with this concept for something called The Dope Show, which is like a reality show where people are trapped in this really weird mansion and given free reign over recreational drugs and then cut off from society completely, right? We worked on that for a long while, maybe 10 years, all said and done, uh, and it never went anywhere. But we had all this material. When we released the first installment of Kill FM, this dude, his name's Tony, that I hadn't spoken to since I was 23, who we originally came up with the concept with together for the Dope Show, he found me. And now we're able to work on that together. It's like the circle life, man. (laughs) yeah, Yeah, it's Fantastic. Well, since you brought it up, you also do Kill FM, which is a uh, weird fiction anthology podcast that comes out occasionally. I'm pleased to say that I've been involved in the first two. I was a voice actor for one in the first one, and then I wrote my own production for the second one. It's a, I really enjoyed that experience. Talk to me about Kill FM and why you started it and what your aims with it are. Okay, so <laughs> it started out of spite. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Like we had all these people who were making all these great shows, Echoes in Between, The Madness of Chartreulian, Wireland, and Sass Supernatural Protection Company. And it's like the conversation is at the time always revolved around a very small and very specific group of people, right? Who seem to have zero interest in widening the pool for the rest of us. So we started joking around like, oh, we can make... I'm not going to name any names here, but we can mm-hmm. do this sort of thing, which is similar to this sort of thing. Jess from Echoes came up with the, you know, Kill FM, keeping you company on the road to hell. And so we just kind of ran with it. And like, I'm a kind of a control freak a little bit. So with that first installment, I was like, everybody give me everything and I'll put it together. Nobody had any idea what I was doing. (laughs) Y'all just sort of trusted me. And I think it turned out really, really well. It was originally just meant to be a Halloween special. It got such a good reception, and there were so many people involved, like the Liminal Lands Discord server, like flooded with people around the time that Kill FM, the first installment, came out. And so we were like, okay, maybe we're onto something. And then before I knew it, Saf and I were like, hey, let's just keep doing this. Do you have a particular goal in mind for doing Kill FM? Just to have fun, man. It's not that serious. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah. So much of this shit is taken so seriously by so many people. And to, I guess to expose people to things they otherwise wouldn't have heard, especially given the limited nature in which the veterans of the industry are willing to help newcomers. Let's talk a little bit about Wireland Ranch. I like to try to summarize a show <laughs> in, in a nice, easy sort of couple of sentences for the listeners. I find myself finding it a little challenging with Wireland. A psychedelic horror certainly is part of that. There is a story involving a, a courier and some mysterious magical or cosmic forces and a very strange shack out in the middle of the desert. So why don't you tell me about Wireland Ranch? Black magic capitalism. That is what the underpinning of the entire show is. I'll use an example I've used in the show. 9-11, for example. 
right? This thing happened, whether, and, and I'm a conspiracy theorist straight up pretty much like I'm okay, pretty, but I, I don't think that 9-11 was some huge conspiracy. What I do think is that a group of people saw what could be accomplished if they were to take it to its extreme from the aftermath of 9-11. And they brought it all together in a way that I don't think can be called anything else other than a magic spell. They were able to get an entire society to hand their rights over. They were able to go into a war with a country that had nothing to do with anything. And they were able to get us all behind it and get us all to a point where we were all willing to do exactly what they wanted because the single thing happened. And to me, that's magic. I don't think there's a, a greater force of magic in this entire world than a good capitalist, you know, not, and not good in like, oh, you're a good person, but good in like, oh, you're really good at fucking people over. Each of the entities within Wireland are specific archetypes for what makes up capitalism, what allows the human condition to lean in this position. And that's what I think Wireland is truly about at its core. I'm interested to your answer to this question. I mean, I, I think we can all agree that there are problematic things involved with capitalism, but what sure. do you think the problems of capitalism are? That there's no ceiling. A huge capitalistic organization always thinks there's more profit to be made. We are at a point in the world, not just as a society, but as a world where that ceiling is quickly approaching and we're going to hit it so hard that I don't think a lot of people are going to come out of it alive. The main problem with our particular capitalist system is the amount of money that goes into creating legislation and getting people elected. One specific thing that I would say, here's the main problem with capitalism, it would have to be Citizens United. Yeah. That would probably be the thing that tipped everything overboard. The Citizens United decision was one that allowed corporations to be counted as people yes. uh, for purposes of donating money to And political. money to be counted as free speech, yes. Yeah, that, money is free speech. Yep. Yeah. Why did you want to tell this story? I think because the feelings of inadequacy, being trapped in this modern world, world 2023, a single person can't change anything unless that single person is a billionaire. Then they can change the world to their whim. But for us, what can we do? And the only thing we can do really is to bring people around to say, hey, maybe this thing that you've thought of as grand and wonderful your whole life isn't. There's a personal toll for each and every person in this country and especially in other parts of the world. Maybe you can make them realize that, hey, maybe this wasn't a good idea in the first place. The absurdity of Wireland is the way that I try to convey that. A tree that won't stop growing leaves will eventually fall over. And that is how our current society exists. Why audio drama as the medium for this story? Keep in mind, when I made the first episode of Wireland, I had zero experience doing any of this, right? I think that audio drama brings a level of resourcefulness like mm. the creators do, that is not as existent in any other form of art. You don't have to have any money to start an audio drama, but you also don't have, enough, have to have any money to, to paint except for to buy the paints, right? But right. how do you get it out there? Yeah, you can paint, but who's going to look at that painting? With audio drama, it's different. People are always willing to say, oh, okay, new show, let's hear this, you know? Yeah. And I think that it's just the best outlet for what I do. Right. I mean, it, it's true that, you know, for the cost of a web hosting service, even even some of those are free, you can put yourself on a platform to be discovered. And, I, and we were lucky, I think. Wireland does pretty okay 
when I first got into this, I'm like, okay, I started looking into all the websites. Like, how do you know if you're doing anything successful? And everything I read was like, dude, if you're getting 20 downloads a week, <laughs> you're yeah. like the top 40% of podcasts. You called Wireland Ranch an amalgamation yes. as opposed to like an audio drama. Can you tell me what yes. you mean by that? Okay. So Wireland Ranch is actually, it's not obvious yet, but will be come the second and third season is all of these things that I've written. All the short stories, the novels, the the everything I've combined into this one thing. So within Wireland, you're going to end up having all of these things that link back to Wireland in some way or another. And all of this material is just sitting there waiting. And so, like, I have a novel called God's Wrath is a Motherfucker. That's eventually going to be in there. And then I've got the dope show. Like, uh, uh, we've got a whole crew of people ready to make that. And the dope show is the house and the show and the network the ho- the show is on is all owned by the same central villain of Wireland. I call it an amalgamation because I'm just I'm throwing shit at a wall and hoping <laughs> it all works out, you know. Let's talk about the first episode, which is called A Return of the Overseer. Yes. And the Overseer is a important figure in this first season. And it's about a courier for hire who is contracted to pick up something from a curiosity shop. But the shop is very, very strange. And his experience there draws him into a consciousness-altering state. Yes. And then it hints at a destiny that he does not expect. We find out in the second episode that he is missing. The pickup instructions listed on the screen stated, come inside store and ask for order at reception. If store is empty, wait. We will appear. If you're the impatient sort, come to the back room. This is inadvisable and may lead to stress and night terrors, but it will garner you the attention you seek. He stopped once again and considered cancellation, but after a moment and a deep breath or two, he shrugged to himself and pushed the heavy wood panel door and, of course, friends, we all know it was locked. But below the lock, a small handwritten sign announced, if the door is locked, ring the bell, and had an arrow originating from a spiral pointing toward a tiny red plastic button that seemed to be glued to the brick next to the brass door handle. And well, What else was he going to do besides press it and ignore the fact that it looked like a toggle switch you would buy at Home Depot and appeared to be connected to nothing? Just a weird toggle switch glued weirdly to a weird brick on a weird building. And as we all guessed, friends, nothing happened. The button didn't even depress. A frustrated sigh passed his lips, and as he was about to turn and head back to the car, he heard a loud, smooth... It's not like a a lot of action. It's really about... Just this guy goes to pick up a thing. Right. But you spend a lot of time really developing a mood and using language to uh, create a feeling yeah, man. in the listener. Wireland is about yeah. the vibes. One of the things I like about your language is that it's it's like a little bit beat poetry. Mm-hmm. It's like a, a little bit David Foster Wallace. Oh, wow. Okay. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a little bit Hunter S. Thompson, uh-huh. you know. Yeah. Uh, it's definitely got that kind of vibe to it. So I am curious just about, you know, your approach to using language. One of my biggest like literary influences, I guess, I've, I've got a couple, but William S. Burroughs would sure. probably be right. number one on the list. Something I didn't really know that people thought about Wireland until later on, way after I'd made it, is that people look at the narration as rhythmic, you know, mm. like, like, uh, you know, like beat poetry, like you just said. Sure. 
I didn't think about that when I was making it, like when I was writing it. And my approach to writing is this, write a sentence, say it like I would on the show. And if it sounds right in my head, that line stays, right? Mm. It's all about like subverting with language in my mind. Like, okay, here's this dude. Yeah, he has a life a lot like yours, probably. They make deliveries and he's drawn into this vicious web of otherworldly influence. The writing itself is exemplary of the overall vibe that I want for Wireland. When I'm thinking about writing, it's not like I'm writing, okay, Joe said this thing. I'm just mm. these weird winding sentences that go on and on and on. <laughs> like, there's like probably in the first episode, there's a, a sentence that's at least a paragraph long because yeah. I don't follow those same rules of language that is considered correct. I follow the rules of language that to me sound good and put a person in a place where they would be able to hear these ideas in a way that they haven't necessarily heard before. I think the language is less important than the feeling I'm trying to convey with the words. I think the use of language is important. I do think sometimes people get hung up on realism as a thing. Yeah. Because honestly, I don't think even people who like realism, like real realism you know right we want language that has been crafted right we want language that has been carefully chosen to evoke emotion or feeling or make it sound believable to character or holds interest wireland itself says very nasty things in flowery language right wireland is a very angry show i don't think that an average listener would listen to the first few episodes and be like okay this is an angry show but the more and more you listen to it you realize okay this is just like pure aggression poured onto the paper, you know? Well, there's no doubt that there is a very strong anti-capitalist sentiment running through it, even from the first episode. Right, right. Um, yeah. You know, you talk about the courier working for slave wages and you have some very, it's very tongue in cheek and it's very wry in the way you present it. Right. But it's certainly very cutting. The chimes seemed different on the last delivery he made. The bright focus group approved Pavlovian dinging that ushered slave wage delivery terms onto his screen was muted and slow seemed deeper, darker, and somehow, as he considered the memory, more than a little unwelcoming. He'd been making waste of time low-rent deliveries all day at that point, two dollars here and three there, an average all-day delivery shift in a perpetually collapsing economy veering dangerously toward what some might consider the end, while others, like our driver here, would consider an improvement. I just want people to look around and go, okay, well, well, maybe that delivery driver that you think is making all this money barely has enough gas in his car to make it to your house. Like, I don't yeah. think people realize the reality. They know their own reality and they know they're struggling and they know things are hard. I don't think they think that is a universal situation. And every day it's becoming more and more universal. We are all equally fucked here. <laughs> I mean, we're all equally fucked and we all need to get together. And if we don't, it's going to be so bad. So there is definitely a, a psychedelic aesthetic that you bring into the show. Yes. And I want to talk about that because uh, it's not just merely sort of about like the hallucinogenic elements or the, the day glow colors that we think of when we think of psychedelia. But I think you're actually tapping into sort of the original psychedelic movement that came out in the, in the 60s, you know, with the belief that LSD and other substances could unlock parts of the brain the sort of or deal with mental illness or altered states of consciousness. Yes. And also, of course, tied into that is a strong counterculture 
were movements, right? There was right. there was a lot of rebellion and there was a lot of attacking the dominant conservative society at the time. What attracts you to the psychedelic aesthetic? During every trip that I've ever had, personally, every psychedelic experience I've ever had, there's this moment of like sheer overwhelming darkness. And sometimes you can snap out of it and have your good trip and everything's great. But sometimes that shit like worms into your brain. You know, mm. when I say psychedelic, that's what I mean. It's that very sharp and very sudden feeling of dread that you are aware if you're not able to get rid of this, it is your destiny for the next six hours, right? Mm. <laughs> if you don't get rid of this, this terrible feeling, then you're stuck with it. And I think that's the part of psychedelia that we, that, that I like to deal in because that to me is the heart of it. Yeah, it can be good. Yeah, it makes everybody laugh. But the things you're laughing at on psychedelics is the absolute absurdity of your station in life, like who you are, where you are at the moment. Everything just becomes this like, oh, this is crazy. And that's the part that I'm trying to tap into is just that that weird moment where you're just like, you can either embrace the darkness and run with it and have the worst time of your life, or you can run away from it. But if you embrace the darkness and run with it, you're going to come out on the other end in a much better mental position than you would have had you scurried away from that darkness. In the first episode, The Courier actually has a very vivid, and I would say dreadful in the sense of being filled with dread, experience where uh, a statue of a sphinx comes to life on this counter of the, the curiosity shop, and there's a disembodied voice that's talking to him. And So, time to get the delivery and peace the fuck out, he decided. Your package is on the desk. He hesitated in his first step toward the desk, lifting his leg high as if the floor was a sponge and his candy flip was kicking in, ecstasy and acid mixing to make the world and especially the floor both frightening and new. Fuck, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna be late, he muttered. We are sure wherever you are going, you will get there right on time. He took another clumsy step, now only a few away from the desk. He could finally see the box on the solid slab. Watch out for the majestic Sphinx, Overseer. She's been known to seek attention when she is in The Jigat can be a real doozy if you aren't. It did feel very much like that kind of altered state of consciousness and that sense of uncertainty about what you can trust and what you can't trust. I try to do that with the language itself, like with the story itself, as well as the audio. I use a lot of binaural audio, different uh, hurts in either ear that can sometimes make you feel a certain way without you realizing it. I, I do a lot of work in that aspect to make sure you are feeling the way that I felt when I was writing it. Audio itself, the form, especially audio drama, audio fiction, that to me is magic. And I just try to run with that in the best way possible. What is magical about audio drama, in your opinion? People who love audio fiction, for instance, they don't just turn a show on in the car. I mean, of course they do sometimes, right? But what they're looking for is to be taken over by this thing. And I think audio with headphones on, dark room, you're going to bed, whatever it might be, has a greater ability to rip you out of yourself than any other form of art. Audio drama forces you to just sort of like be with yourself and let those things wash over you and try to understand what the creator was doing and try to get yourself in that same mind frame that the character is in. And I really don't think that any other type of art 
comes close to being able to do that. Yeah, I've said this a couple of times. For me, the audio drama experience is, number one, it's very personal, right? It's mm -hmm. intimate. Yes. The, the experience is right there in your ears. And it's usually just you by yourself. I mean, sometimes people will play it on speakers or whatever, but right. it's usually just you. And then the other thing is that it's incredibly imaginative because you only have the audio as your sense. Right. And we're actually very visually oriented creatures. So what that forces us to do is that we fill in the gaps. We make things appear in our minds based on the cues we get from the audio. So it, it's not just personal in the sense of feeling intimate. It's personal in the sense that we create the image of the action along with the creator. And I do think that's kind of magical. And just little things like being able to, like I talked about binaural audio a minute ago, that in and of itself, you can play a frequency at four hertz in one ear and six in the other, and it can create a feeling of intense unease mm. that is completely separate from what you're actually consciously hearing. And I think that's where like that, that meeting between subconscious and consciousness is where the magic lies for audio drama. What do you struggle with? Uh, myself? Um, I struggle with like a lot of times, what's the point, right? Mm. That's probably the main question I ask myself more than anything else is what's the point? Why would anybody want to listen to what I have to say? I'm a 40 year old ex-con like, and I'm just talking shit about capitalism for like an hour at a time. Like, who's, who's listening to this? You know, I think that's probably my biggest struggle is realizing that maybe the uniqueness of Wireland resonates with people on a level that I don't quite understand. That's what is going to either make or break the show, you know? Yeah. Uh, I, I have a very similar struggle. I think you know that I, I wrote Book of Constellations, probably had a sense of frustration about the way the world was going really sort of looking at how things were spiraling out of control from capitalism, but also just in general, culturally in our, in our country. I also kind of go, well, yeah, but who cares, right? What's the point? Why does anybody want to hear right, you? Right, exactly. That? Like that's yeah. the, yeah. And, and I guess I, I don't have an answer to that question, but I, I do kind of feel like I did something as opposed to nothing. And maybe that's enough. I, I hope that it is because like when I first started, I was like, when I first started, I was excited. You know, I'm doing this new thing. It's great. It's so exciting. And the more time went on, the more that excitement has to be replaced by will, mm, yeah. you know? And if it's not replaced by will, there's nothing left there. And I think that's what I've been struggling with since the beginning of the year, finding that happy medium between who the hell wants to listen to this and have you watched YouTube lately? You know what I mean? Like, like have you seen the shit people are watching on YouTube? Yeah. Like, so what I do to make myself feel better, I'll go find a very terrible piece of media with like, I don't know, millions of views, watch that and then go, okay, well, Wireland's better than that. I'm fine. <laughs> you know? and that's about where it sticks. Now, this is bringing me to the question that I have to ask, which is mm -hmm. how do you measure success? This might sound trite and very capitalistic from an anti-capitalist like myself, but if I'm making enough money to continue making the show, yeah. To make it justifiable with my time and energy, just enough to live to keep making it. 
I guess that's yeah. what I would consider success. Yeah. I mean, anti-capitalists got to eat too, right? Exactly. Right. Dude, it sucks. It sucks. It's funny. It's funny. You'll listen to a show like behind the bastards or, or like some more news. <laughs> and it's like, the, the, here's all this hideous information about capitalism and how after these ads, you know, <laughs> it's like, it's, they've got us in a position. And when I say they, I mean the overarching they, right. They have us convinced that we need them. Charlie Kaufman giving his speech, I believe it was at the Oscars. And he was like, they have made us think that we need them when the reality is they need us without us. There is no soul. They require us to be the soul of their machine that they keep going and going and going and exploiting. And if we all stopped, what would they be left with? If there's one thing I want people to see and people to understand is the reason things are the way they are is because we allow them to be that way. And if we can all get together and say, hey, we don't want it like this anymore, it changes. It has no choice but to change. And it'll be hard and they'll fight and they'll struggle and whatever. But if we all stick together, we can change the way things are. He cleared the notifications and clicked confirm pickup. He used the light from the screen to locate the small box on the desk. He grabbed it and ran through the door and into his car as quickly as possible. He plugged his phone in and when it vibrated to signal successful connection, the vibrations did not stop. A long, low rumble shook the swampy summer night. In his rearview mirror, he saw the rush of a dust cloud headed toward the car and within a second engulfed it completely. Wireland Ranch is indeed all about the vibes. The show uses language and sound to evoke feelings of dread uncertainty, and wonder. Taking inspiration from counterculture icons like William S. Burroughs and Hunter S. Thompson, Wireland Ranch wants you to feel as much as listen, in the hopes that feeling will move you to change. You can listen to Wireland Ranch on most major podcast platforms, or see our show notes for more information. The first episode of is written and produced by W. Keith Timms. All the opinions expressed in this show belong to the people who expressed them and not necessarily to anyone else. The theme song is Mockingbird by David Mumford. This show is a production of Alien Ghost Robot Creative Media. If you want more information, want to sign up for our newsletter, or are an audio drama creator and would like to be on the show, visit our website at thefirstepisodeof.com. We're happy to be a part of the Audio Drama Lab, a Discord-based resource for audio drama development and networking. Check it out at audiodramalab.com. Keep telling stories. It's the only way we're going to get out of this mess. Until next time. I know you got questions about him. Where did he come from? How did he do all those things they say he did? Was he a terrorist? Was he crazy? Was his skin really blue? Well, I'll tell you what I know. I was there with him, driving through the back roads under the stars. I was witness to wonders and miracles, and to the darkness that's coursing through the veins of our country. He came to fight it in his own strange way, but no one leaves that fight unchanged. Not even Rael. People ought to know the truth. And I was there. 
The Book of Constellations is a down-to-earth sci-fi road trip. It's audio fiction, and you can find episodes at bookofconstellations.com or wherever you get your podcasts.